Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. What do you do when you're the journalist who lives to ask the questions, but suddenly the questions are fired back at you? Well, if you're me, the host of Broad Talk, you take the microphone and tell it like it is. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again! Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk. I'm Virginia Hausiger. Thank you so much for joining me for this rather unusual episode of Broad Talk and the last in this series. We're taking a break for a few weeks and then return with a new season of Broad Talk focused on men. We're going to look at the challenges of masculinity, particularly in the face of the current momentum around gender equality, the march for justice and the rise of feminism. But first, to me. Well, I have to be honest with you, I was a little reluctant to agree to the recording of what you're about to hear. But given I've made a career out of interviewing other people on all sorts of personal and professional issues, I figured the least I can do is say, yes, sure, when someone turns the table on me, even though it makes me a little uncomfortable. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in early May in front of a live audience at the National Portrait Gallery as part of the EY Women in Leadership Breakfast Series. It was beautifully hosted by Pimentri Pile, a partner at EY Australia. In it, we discuss, among other things, the news stories that have been turning points in my career 
including coverage of the 1998 Monica Lewinsky sex scandal in Washington, the impact of war on women in Afghanistan and the rise of women in politics. We also discuss quotas and what three things would help close the global gender gap, which the World Economic Forum currently suggests will take 137 years. Prompted by pointy questions from the audience, I also tackle the current challenges for young women who are trying to forge careers in the face of gender inequity and what's the role of men. We discuss what good leadership might look like and why I'm fed up with talking about women and leadership. After interviewing several women about their experiences of the March for Justice, I discuss the common thread. Surprisingly, it's not what you might have thought. And finally, what has the March for Justice movement achieved? Surprisingly, a lot more than most people think. I hope you enjoy this chat. Virginia, as a journalist over three decades, you've interviewed hundreds of television uh, pe- people on television, on current affairs, documentaries, radio shows, and in most recent times, your podcast. Um, I feel a little bit um, in awe to be the one interviewing you today. Um, however, it would be lovely to hear your views and what motivated you to become a journalist and to talk about your career. Uh, Thank you, Pamrenthi. I've got to say, it is so lovely to sit here and not have to do anything. (laughs) It's a joy. Um, Because, yes, normally I am the one asking the questions. Uh, What motivated me to become a journalist? There's a long answer, but I will try to keep it short. Um, In short... And can I, just before I start, actually say, I'm delighted to be sitting here and I look around and see so many friends and colleagues and, and colleagues from the University of Canberra, hello Vicky, and others that I've worked with and I continue to work with, and it is such a delightful thing to, to be in such a, a, a lovely audience. And thank you all for getting up so early, I'm very impressed. <laughs> I'm not a morning person. Um, look, the short answer in what motivated me to, to get into journalism, I was at Melbourne University um, doing an arts degree. Um, my area of, of love was um, fine art history. In fact, <clears throat> I've just done a little video for the Love Stories exhibition with my husband, which is online apparently, but with the Portrait Gallery. And um, it's quite funny because we do nothing but argue. So. <laughs> um, But fine arts was where I expected to spend my time. I had spent a year studying in Mexico. I fell in love with pre-Columbian art. And um, this is going back a long time ago, um, 1980, 81. And I thought that I would go through university and write the definitive book on, um, in English, the definitive English text on pre-Columbian art. Journalism struck me as a way to get a job Mm-hmm. And I would write my book at night and go and be a journalist during the day. And a friend of mine who was doing law at, university, at Melbourne University was applying for a cadetship. Yeah. And I remember thinking, hmm, if Simone can do that, so could I. But she was applying for a cadetship at the Age newspaper. We had to sit in the exam. And I can't spell. I honestly <laughs> cannot spell. And then when I heard that the ABC TV News was 
um, advertising for television journal, uh, cadet journalists. And the, apart from applying, the requirement then was a camera test and an interview. I thought, well, that's more my speed. <laughs> and I applied. And the rest is history. But look, the driving, driving that, so that's a simple version, but driving that, and by the way, I never did write the definitive text on pre-Columbian art. <laughs> I'll get to it eventually. I'll get to it. But driving my, my love of journalism... The, the moment I walked into that newsroom in, in Melbourne um, as, a, as a shiny new cadet, um, I knew I was in the right place for me. Um, I have an insatiable hunger for information, an insatiable curiosity. I've never grown out of saying why, but why, but why. I used to drive my mother nuts. <laughs> But everything was a, but why? But why? Um, but I am genuinely and deeply motivated by curiosity and wanting to know not only why, but what makes people tick out, why we do what we do. Um, so much so that one of my best friends through my university days used to say to me, you know, I would never, ever get a boyfriend because we'd go to parties and I, she said, you always interview people. <laughs> because I'd corner people in the kitchen and ask them a thousand questions and I was very much a one-on-one person. Um, but again, it was just that fascination with why? Why, why do we do what we do? Mm. And, and how does the world work? And I've never, as I say, I've never grown out of that. Well, fantastic, and what an impressive and diverse career it's been. Um, when, when you spoke about, you know, those formative years, through, through your time over these three decades, which was the news event or coverage do you think was the turning point in your career and why? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, look, I think having started my, my journalism career in the mid-'80s, there is no single story that has been a turning point, but there probably have been a few that stand out that led me on new paths. Um, uh, and look, I, I guess to name a few, um, as a young journalist, I, I was very quickly sent up to, to join the Victorian Press Gallery, and I, I was very disappointed that... that my boss sent me up there. I didn't want to do politics. And in fact, to be honest, when he called me into my office and said, you're going up to, to the press gallery, I cried. <laughs> I didn't want to go. But uh, it turned out I fell in love with politics. I absolutely loved it. But the, probably a, a turning point for me at that time was, this was when John Kane was Premier of Victoria. And um, he was a very generous man, and I got to know him quite well, as well as you, you do when you're a journalist. But I was one of only two women in the press gallery at the time um, for mainstream media. And he, he went out of his way to be particularly kind and generous towards me and the other young woman, particularly at press conferences, answering our questions and making sure we got to ask a question. That in itself was incredibly unusual. Yeah. But... I guess a turning point for me was when he left, I had befriended Joan Kerner a little and, and I was quite impressed by the way she managed what at the time was a very blokey press gallery. We're, we're talking late 80s. 
um, and she managed it really well. And then when he stood down, there, of course, were all these rumours about who would take over as Premier. And um, I did something that no-one told me to do, but I, 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 I had a hunch that she would be the one. Well, I mean, obviously, she was on the shortlist, but there were others as well. But I, I left my office and I ran down to her, her actual office in, I think it was the top of Collins Street at the time, went in, and, um, and, and the, the days were different then. You could do this in those days. And, and literally sat down with her to have a chat about, are you going to do it? Are you going to, are you going to step up? And, and, of course, she, she did, but she wasn't telling me that at that time. But she gave me... She did give me an interview, and I, I called the office and, and got um, 7.30 to send a camera crew in, and we did do a, a, an interview, which was considered an exclusive at the time. I then watched her and worked quite closely, staying in the press gallery, with her over most of her time as Premier, and watched how she was treated and how she fought back. Yeah. And I think it was a formative time. I, yeah. I think that sort of set in train for me an acute awareness about the treatment of women in powerful mm. positions and what can happen. Yeah. So that was, a, that, was a, that was an important time. Moving on, I mean, there are many, many different stories I could, could uh, touch on, but I'll just name two others. Um, late 90s. I was um, uh, at a party in Sydney where my boss tapped me on the shoulder and said, go home, pack your bag, you're going to, to Washington. Um, and I did, and rolled up at the White House. Bill Clinton was president, and I had a crew and producer with me, and we were the only Australians there. In fact, I think we were the only foreign crew. And we rocked into the uh, West Wing. There was some very boring press conference on the budget. I was there for a different reason. Monica Lewinsky. Lewinsky. Wow. <laughs> now, you all remember that story. So I ended up staying some time and we did a one-hour documentary for Channel 7 at the time. Mm. In hindsight, and, and I savaged her, mm. as we did, as the, mm. as the mainstream the media did. did, as the world did. In hindsight, so that was 98, I think. In hindsight, over the years, I've thought a lot about that story. Yeah. And I've thought a lot about how we, as, as media, treated that woman. Yeah. And when I think about where we are right now in terms of gender equality and our, our public narrative around women and women in positions of being disempowered, that story would be told so differently now. Absolutely. I'm appalled at what we did. It's been a, a very interesting reflection for me, that story. Um, and then, look, the last one I'd say is in 2009, I, um, I did something very unusual for, for me, I, um, I, I took leave, actually, of my role here at the ABC, where I was a news presenter, and bought myself a commercial ticket to fly to Dubai, and then from Dubai into Afghanistan. Yeah. And I went on my own. <laughs> I didn't go with the safety of a security detail or a, a crew. Um, I had been reporting on the news every night or presenting on the news every night stories about our involvement in Afghanistan, Australia's involvement, yeah. and the unfolding of the horrific war in Afghanistan. And every single night, night after night, it was an operational story, it was a military story, it was a political story. We were not 
ever talking about how this war was impacting the people of Afghanistan, and most importantly, the women. Yeah. And the women of Afghanistan were used by world leaders, certainly George Bush, echoed by John Howard, our Prime Minister at the time. The women were the reason, supposedly, we, we were going in. into Afghanistan mm -hmm. to actually liberate the women. Even George Bush's wife um, spoke publicly about this, Laura Bush, about the need to liberate the women of Afghanistan, and yet we weren't hearing about them. So I, I went on my own, um, and I had met an, an extraordinary woman here in Australia, an Afghan woman who'd set up an a, um, orphanage in Kabul for Afghan orphans and widows, and I'd met her here in Australia, uh, Maboba Rawi is her name, and she, she was running or runs a, a, an NGO called Maboba's Promise. And I'd met her. She'd invited me to go to Afghanistan. When I knocked on her door in Dubai, we, we, we'd met here, and then it wasn't until a year later I, I knocked on her door, um, and she burst into tears. And she kept saying, I can't believe you're here, you've come. I didn't think you'd come, and I was thinking, but you invited me. <laughs> I'm here. Um, and then she kept telling me how courageous I was. My, my jaw, for a day or two when I first arrived in Afghanistan, got locked. And I was so nervous. I was so scared. And I was so... Um, um, sort of, well, terrified's a, not even the right word. It was just... I, I, I didn't know what it really had propelled me to get there other than I knew I needed to. To cut a long story short, I was also a, a columnist for Fairfax at the time. I'd been writing a lot about... Um, um, gender equality in Islam and the treatment of women. And I had received a lot of flack from that, a lot. I had received death threats. I had received very angry um, emails and letters and phone calls. I'd been invited to events here by Muslim women in Canberra to talk through some of the issues, which was great. Yeah. Um, so I also felt compelled to, to go for myself yeah. and see for myself what life was like for these women, yeah. and I did. Um, and I stayed about a month, mm -hmm. uh, and it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And I, I did end up doing a story, as it turned out, for the 730 report, but I actually ended up being part of a documentary. I met a, a, yeah. an Iranian film crew who were doing a documentary, and somehow I got scooped up into that. And, um, and that has now won awards all around the world. It's called Love, Marriage in Kabul, and that's a whole other story. And a book has been written about it too. Yeah, no, fantastic, Virginia, and you're such a, a truth-teller in, in many respects. I can ask Virginia a whole range of questions, but I am going to throw to the audience, and I'll come back and, and ask a few more. Are there anyone um, here who would love to, to get it going? In... Too early in the morning, I think. Otherwise, I'll go right <laughs> into it. Well done, down this end, Ms. Morning, Virginia. Hello. I'm Nicole Lauder. I wanted to ask, you know, given we have well over 100 years before we achieve equality for women at the current rate, if you could give us one or two or three things we could do to speed, easily or otherwise, to speed up that rate that we can achieve equality, what would they be? Oh, Nicole, that's such a great, great question. 136.5 years yep. to close the gap, according to the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index that came Indeed. out just recently, for 2021. Um, 
to close the economic gap, 202 years. I don't think I'll be around then. I certainly hope I'm not. <laughs> um, what are the th three things? Look, there are, there are no simple answers to this big, big question. But I would say right now, here in Australia for us, there are, there are some very obvious things that we could be doing to accelerate gender equality. One of them, which was discussed at the press gallery, at uh, press club um, on Tuesday, if any of you were watching, um, it was the Women in Economics panel. Gender responsive budgeting. Yes. Now, I have been, myself, uh, my colleagues, I've been talking about this forever, for years, calling for it for years. There have been concerted campaigns from various women's organisations for years. It is now a mainstream discussion. Gender-responsive budgeting has been implemented by governments around the world, particularly those that are doing better in the gender equality stakes. As you would know, and you know very well, Nicole, Australia has fallen down the Global Gender Gap Index every year since 2006 right. when they first started. We were number 12 in the world, at the t 15 in the world at the time. I thought, as a journalist, I reported on that. I thought that was bad. We are now, th 50. now at 50 um, in the world out of 156 nations for a rich, yeah. well-educated nation that rank, rates number one in the world for equality of education and has since 2006. It is disgraceful that we are dropping down in gender equality, dropping down not just the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index, but all four main global indices, we are dropping down. So Australia is, is considered quite shameful in that regard. So those that are doing better have implemented gender-responsive budgeting, most of them, particularly across the Nordic countries. Yep. Canada is a standout. The second thing is, and Canada introduced this in the late 90s, GBA+, Gender Biased Analysis+. Plus. Now, this is a, yep. a framework that government uses to, to run all policy that goes to Cabinet through, looking for what are, the, what are the effects on different genders, what are the impacts of this policy. The plus bit is when they added intersectionality to it. Initially, it was just gender-based gender analysis. The plus now moves into inter, uh, intersectionality by also looking at um, ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic income, age, level of education and a few and disability yeah. uh, and a few other things. Now, a GBA plus framework for all policy is such an obvious thing. Uh, I raised this with Martin Parkinson when he was um, head of PMNC and he also thought it was a great idea. And in fact, he was on my advisory council. We talked about getting some work done around this. The Office for Women sent, had, had one of their staff seconded to Canada um, to, for six weeks to look at how they, they did this. Uh, I was in dialogue with them. But unfortunately, we just didn't get it going and we all got busy. That's, that's an obvious thing, GBA plus um, for policy. But look, the third thing, and there are many others I could say, but the third thing is it, it is time we have to introduce quotas. Now, I know yeah. people are very nervous of quotas and get terribly frightened by quotas. All around the world, nations that are improving the representation of women in democracy, in positions of political power, 
have introduced some form of quotas. It is ludicrous that we don't. We can say we wait, time will heal, time will trickle down more women, et cetera, et cetera. We know it's not working. 2013, we had a cabinet with one woman in it. One. 2015, Canada had 50-50, and when asked why, Justin Trudeau said, because it's 2015. You know, it, Australia is really, really dragging its feet on yeah. those sorts of things. So they are, they are basic um, frameworks that are, that are there, that are tested, tried, proven, that we can introduce if we had the will. I'm talking about the will. And, and I, I know, Virginia, you and I shared that in 1994, at the first democratic elections in South Africa, um, there was 33% of parliament was women, and that's 1994. Mm. And it wasn't just about dealing with the racial inequities. Um, even then, government, they knew that it was as much about getting diversity mm. and in all its forms. And, and isn't that... We've discussed this, and it yeah. is appalling to think that Australia's not even there yet. We're yeah. still... We're 33, just, just... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Talking about the budget, what's your expectations for next week when the budget's being handed down? And would we do more, given the moment we live in, to ensure that it's going to be sustainable over time as opposed to a bit of lipstick on a pig? I have great expectations for this budget, as do all of us, um, as do certainly many women's organisations. Copious submissions have been put in. Letters have been written, campaigns have been run, um, and I would be surprised if there isn't a significant package for women. Last year's budget, despite all the submissions that we put in, many, 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 many women's organisations, academics, evidence-based research that was showing that women had been impacted uh, more severely by COVID than men, um, that women were suffering the majority of job losses, that women, because of the more precarious nature of women's work, because of our very feminised um, work industries in Australia, and the lowest paid ones, of course, being populated mostly by women. All of that evidence was before government, and yet the budget really didn't reflect that at all. As was said at the press club yesterday by one of the economists, um, the budget was all about... Uh, 
high-vis and hard hats and mm. Uh, mm. industries in which men dominate. Um, it was a shocking failing, a failure. I And, look, I have spoken myself to Josh Frydenberg about this and um, I'm sure many others have. I, I would be, therefore, very surprised and uh, I don't think they would make that mistake again for this budget. And we look, look forward to hearing more on that. Any further questions from our guests? One down there. Good morning, Virginia and Pimentri. Thank you Hi. so much for sharing your stories. You've just spoken about... Uh, my name is Natalie Bonatakis and I'm with AY. You've just spoken about um, how poorly Australia is... <clears throat> excuse me. ..performing in that gender equality. What do you think is the biggest challenge that young women are facing in forging their careers? And what can we do about it? A big question. It, look, that's a very good question too. Um, <clears throat> the, Again, I could speak for hours on this, but the, the biggest challenge, I think, for young, younger women right now in, in, in their careers is that we have had a revolution in the way we think about work. We've had a, a, a sexual revolution in Australia since, gosh, the 60s. We haven't had a domestic revolution yet. We haven't had the real revolution in the bedroom. We really haven't. We haven't had the revolution at home that we need to have. And I can see every woman in this room right now nodding because you know what I'm talking about, don't you? So w when I was coming through and um, well, others of, of my age coming through and we, going through university, we were part of the sort of a, an early cohort, I suppose, there was a lot of discussion about how women would juggle careers and... Um, and family life, and then there was the rise of the superwoman. God, may she die! Um, <laughs> and all you know, this, all this great expectation. But, but that conversation has kind of stopped. Well, it has it stopped now? The narrative has moved on, and the expectation is that women just do it. What we've done is given women heavier roles, heavier loads, without compensating that. The, the revolution we haven't had is that we haven't brought men along on that journey. And when I talk to my, my particularly my um, Nordic colleagues, in fact, one of the researchers working with me at the 5050 Foundation, the very first woman I had working for me is Finnish. Yeah. And the difference in thinking about the way we handle and bring up families and have children is so stark is so, so, so stark. And, and I have a Dutch um, family as well and a uh, Dutch brother-in-law and my sister lived in Holland. And again, the, the, the way they brought up their children, the expectations about her going back to work, and it, they, they, it just wasn't an issue yeah. like it is in Australia. So in answer to the question, the hardest thing is, I think, opening up those conversations about power in relations sharing in relations, and I don't mean just men doing a few domestic chores, I mean actually sharing the household, the running of the household, uh, sharing responsibility around children. Australia has a very old-fashioned um, uh, tax system that actually discriminates against men being primary carers. Um, 
because men being the, the greater uh, income earners. We have to change that, obviously. But more than anything, I think, for young women, it's having the conversations right from the beginning about power in relations. It's not just doing the jobs. It's who, who, who is doing what? Who gets to make the decisions and at what time? And also juggling the power in any relationship, as most of us know, there are times when some careers uh, will be stronger and more dominant and more time-consuming than others, and where you pull one of you has to pull back a bit, and then other times when someone else has to step up. Yeah. We we don't talk about that. Yeah. We need to. Yeah, and I, I can certainly attest to that. There's always mm. going to be a balance in how you mm. you juggle those. Um, mm. Any other questions? Thank you. Carolyn Walsh from IPA ACT, the Institute of Public Administration. Um, thank you for that comment about personal relationships and the difference that that can make. I'm happy to say that I'm here because my husband is home with the four kids and he's actually winding his career down so that I can focus on mine and he can yeah. look after our children. My question is related a little bit to that issue, but I want to take it up a level. Why do we have conversations still about women in leadership and why aren't we talking more about men in leadership and what men in organisations and structures and men in power can be doing to shift these conversations. Caroline, that's a fantastic question. Why are we still talking about women in leadership? It's boring, isn't it? I mean, it actually is. Look, I, it is boring. I wrote a book in 2005 where I, I um, had a, a number of quotes from famous feminists going right back to de Beauvoir she was saying, I'm tired of talking about women. It's boring. <laughs> um, Betty Friedan said it. Even Anne Summers said it. And I'm saying it too. It is boring. Why are we still talking about it? We're still talking about it because we're not getting it right. It's as simple as that. Um, our, our talk isn't being matched by action. And you know what? I... I, I, I I am a very proud Australian, and I am very, very honoured mm. to be an Australian. Um, and I think I have won the geographical lottery by being born here. Mm. Uh, how privileged we are. But, you know, I also think as Australians, women suffer an extraordinary lack of confidence. And again, when I'm associating with my international colleagues, or I, I did a course at Harvard a few years ago, and I was with 50 other amazing women from around the world, around the globe, and it hit me again. There were a few Australians among us, but it hit me again. We don't, we don't display the sort of confidence I see in, in our colleagues elsewhere. And I think this comes back to a very entrenched patriarchal culture in Australia that we've been brought up with. Um, and that's one of the reasons we, not only are we still talking about women leadership, but we need to because we haven't cracked through well enough. Yeah. As simple as that. To think that, to think that it is still an issue to get women in cabinet, to get women in parliament, 
It is still an issue to get women in leadership positions. It is still an issue to get women in senior media roles. We do not have any media owned by women in Australia. It is still news media, which affects all of us and helps us understand the world around us, is still told through a framework that was designed and set by men. It still is. We don't have women. Yes, we've got plenty of women reporting on television because they're pretty and they're Indeed. young. But we don't have women controlling the, the, the frameworks or, or setting the frameworks, I should say. Um, we never have. So this is why we're still talking about women and leadership. Um, we're, you know, Australia, as I say, is an incredibly privileged place. But in, some, in, in these respects, we're actually quite backward. Yeah. We really are. And it, I know it, you yeah. would reflect to this comment around, it, you know, there's women in leadership, but the concept of how well Australia does in leadership. Yes. And what's your views on leadership and how well we do? Leadership generally is, a, is another passion of mine um, in Australia. When we're talking about just how well do we perform as leaders, yeah. I, I would, and I often say to people when I'm running masterclasses and what have you on, on communications and presentation, look around you in Australia. Who, who are our great orators? Who are our great speakers? Who are our great leaders that we look up to? I don't mean leaders, I mean, Prime Minister, of course you look up to yeah. the Prime Minister because he, because he or she is in the position of extraordinary power. We have leaders that are there by management virtue, by position virtue, but who are the leaders? I mean, it's really, I often put this to students too and say, tell me who are the five most powerful women you can think of or who are the five most powerful people in Australia you can think of and then who are the best speakers and they just go silent. Mm. Um, well, often they'll name celebrities mm. who, and often when I ask for the most powerful women, they will name um, celebrity women on television, that sort of thing. But... You know, we don't have a good, or a, 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 a um, we don't have a strong culture of a public leadership in Australia that is bold, that displays strong oratory. Yeah. Uh, we just don't. And I'll just give you a little example. I remember when um, David Morrison made that incredible speech, the video speech, the Get Out speech, the famous one. He, of course, went on and then became Australian of the Year in 2016. David Morrison, I know, got a huge amount of backlash over making that video, but I remember watching it. Mm -hmm. As soon as it was done, someone sent it to me, and um, I'd never paid much attention to Morrison, but, uh, I, but I was very aware of the work that Liz Broderick was doing with him at, um, at, uh, within Army, and I watched that speech and it was, it was, it was a crystallising moment when, because I know he had been through an extraordinary change of understanding. The alarm bells had gone off when he'd finally had his aha moment when he got it uh, about violence within his own force and the, the poor or the disgraceful treatment of women and he finally got it. Um, and, and Liz Broderick sort of slowly took him to that point. But when I watched that speech, and I, I, it was crystallising because I, it made me realise it was such a powerful speech and it was okay. so from the heart and it was so angry and I'd never seen 
anything like it yeah. from an Australian leader before. And I remember thinking, we can do this. It can be done. Can. Even though he, he suffered a lot for it, uh, it can be done. Um, if, if driven by uh, authenticity and, and belief and passion. And, and I think, you know, Julia Gillard would be another. And Gillard as you know, well. The misogyny yeah. speech. And you know, me watching Nelson Mandela... A, a perfect and, example. You know, a perfect example. An ability to just have a presence. And, yes. uh, you know, a leader has a very different yes. feel. Yes. But, no, there's some great comments. Anything from anyone else? <laughs> I, go on, go for it, Caroline. <laughs> go for it. Can I ask a follow-up question? Of course Certainly. <laughs> there are powerful men in this room who lead organisations and influence decision makers and are decision makers, what's your call to action for them to support this? You know, <clears throat> Caroline, it, it, it's a great question. I, I, I'm not really going to answer it because the men in this room know. Yeah. They know. You, you all know. You know what you need to do. You know the conversations that you need to have. You know... We have all the frameworks. We have gender equality strategies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm not a big... This is really putting myself out there, but I'm not a big um, believer in the success of a lot of the, the strategies. I've been involved in designing some of them, but I'm not, I, I've since seen a lot of uh, strategies and policies that are put in place that have become ticks box, um, tick box uh, uh, actions. Um, what, when it works, and, and interestingly, I see some great success when it comes to gender equality and um, empowering women. I see it in, in the private sector more so than I see in the, in, the, in the public sector, which is a great shame. But when I see it working, it's usually where men in positions of power, and it's invariably, of course, men, who, are, who hold the leaves of power in, in those big organisations, they get it. They just get it. They've, they've, they've understood it. They're smart. They've listened. They've, 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 they've taken the time to, to learn, to ask, and, and most importantly, to listen. You know, my husband, who, who's well, a journalist, he's actually a professor now, but he said to me, when at New, Year's, New Year, I always make New Year's resolutions and make him listen to mine, because once you <laughs> say it out loud, you're kind of stuck with it, which he's always thought is a bit of a silly thing, well, a bit of a you know, funny thing to do, but I do it every New Year's Day on the 1st of January in the morning, sit up in bed and go through my list. And he said to me at the end of it, why don't you add to that that you are going to... <laughs> it's been very personal now, but he said, why don't you add to that that for a whole year you are not going to ask men questions? And the reason he said that is because we go to a lot of functions, a lot of formal gatherings, and I do a lot of ask and dinners. I do a lot of asking men questions, and I will be driving home, and I'll say, he never once asked me who I am or what I do. Or, no, 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 no. And I really had no interest in blah, 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 blah. And that's why Mark said to me, why don't you say for a year you're going to stop asking men questions so they have to start asking you questions? That's Just sit there and be silent, which is very hard for me. 
But, mm. but, you know, I was brought up by a mother who was a corporate wife, for goodness sakes, and that's what she did. She yeah. ran dinner parties for my father. Mm. And that was terribly successful. And I watched her as a kid, as a girl, I thought the world yeah. of her. I watched her do this. And I, you know, I, I picked it up by osmosis. So coming back to your question, the men in this room do know what they need to do. Um, and it's not for me to tell them. The strategies, it's not about the strategies. It's not about the policies. You, you know. Just do it. Well, I might pivot to, you know, this moment and, you know, living through the 15th of March. Um, you've worked, you interviewed many women in the most recent one who were part of March for Justice. What were some of those common themes that have emerged through those discussions oh, about a, this moment and where do you think we'll go with that? That's a, that's a really good question, yes. On Broad Talk in particular, in the, last, in the most recent series, which we're just about to wind up, um, on, and the series was on specifically gender equality, are we there yet? But then the march happened. And every week we've done since then, every interview has... Uh, inevitably talked about the march and, and I've interviewed a number of the speakers including Janine Hendry who yeah. is the woman who founded the whole march movement um, and the Broad Talk interview with her is particularly interesting and I would recommend people listen to it because she explains her motivation yeah. um, which is something I hadn't fully understood yeah. and it, it, it's, it's worth hearing um, but what is interesting, the common theme is not what I think people would expect I expected that every speaker would talk about um, the prevalence of violence. And we, we all know the catch cry, enough is enough. What I, what I got through a number of those interviews for Broad Talk and my broader discussions with women, and I've written a bit about this in, in commentary as well, is that what brought women and men out on the 15th of March at rallies around the nation, there were 47 altogether, including two in London, wasn't only an understanding and uh, uh, impatience with the way violence against women is, is not treated seriously enough and, and um, uh, understood in Australia, but it was... It was the fact that women for, forever have felt the experience that I guess Brittany Higgins' story coming out raised, and her story was not new, and she's not the first woman to be raped, and she's probably not the first woman to be raped in Parliament, or certainly to allege that. Um, but it was the way a woman was not believed, dismissed, disempowered, moved on by her boss, uh, treated as what happened to her was not relevant, it, it was not important because she was not important. Every single woman knows what it's like to feel secondary, to feel dismissed, to feel talked over or um, looked over or talked down and certainly to be not listened to. Um, and what came through a lot of the broad talk interviews from women talking about the march and their feelings 
well, this is these myriad of grievances that all women carry with them. And the march, the rally, was a moment when women could... It gave us permission to say, gee, I'm sick of this. I am sick of it. And I am sick of hearing about the violence against women. I'm sick of hearing, feeling unsafe at night. I'm, I'm sick of, you know directing how I walked my car when I come out of a restaurant at night and I'm on my own and feeling unsafe all the time. I, do, I did it myself the other night on exactly that. I left some friends and I was walking to my car here in Canberra and I did what a lot of women do. You pick up your phone, you turn it on and pretend you're talking because I felt unsafe. I am sick of that. You know, it is just wrong. So the, the myriad... This is a long-winded answer, but the myriad of things that brought women together and men... That, not just the violence, but also the lack of representation. I'm appalled that here we are in 2021 yeah. and we still refer to a House of Representatives and we've never had one. We have never had a House of Representatives in Australia. We've never been representative. We do not, we do not have the democracy we say we do. We just don't. So, uh, you know, that has been brewing for a long time too. And the frustration with that, the frustration of what we saw in 2017 with the, the Me Too movement bubbling up and then exploding, uh, and then 2018, not a week went past without a headline about the government's women problem at the time and harassment and a discussion of harassment and bullying and Julia Banks quitting Parliament and Linda Reynolds herself speaking up and others speaking up and slut-shaming and all that sort of stuff and Sarah Hanson-Young being told to fuck off by one of her fellow senators in Parliament, in the chamber, on Hansard and then repeating it outside of Parliament. I mean, all of that has built a real moment. resentment mm about the treatment of women, and that was part of the explosion. Yeah. Where does it go? The, I hear a lot of people, particularly people who are, are very cynical about what that rally did, say, oh, yes, well, nothing's happened since. Well, that is nonsense. It's happened. We are having different conversations. We can't put it back in the box. We can't undo what has happened in terms of, of 100,000-plus people coming out and rallying and, and calling out enough is enough. That, and when I say, it, I was going to say it's the start, it's not the start at all. It is part of a, an ongoing process. But we have, we're already having different conversations. So in effect, it has already been incredibly powerful. I don't care if we never make public reference to it again. Well, I do. But, but that's not the point. The point is the, the shift has occurred and women have seen, looking around those rallies, even here on the 15th, to see all these women and men out saying the same thing, feeling the same frustration, was like, oh, my God, I'm not the only one. Yeah. That was the biggest power of all of that. Fantastic. And, you know, Broad Talk, the theme was, are we there yet? What's <laughs> going to be the next theme for your next series? Very good question. Well, it's actually it's been raised this morning. Our next series is Men. It's men and masculinity, and yes, Josh Frydenberg is kicking off that series, which will be really interesting. Um, so if you, if you haven't subscribed, please pull out your phone and subscribe to Broad Talk, or one work, 
would. Tell everyone you know to do the same. That way your episodes will come through. Uh, I'm not quite sure what our next uh, kick-off date is. But it's time to talk. I've spent my life interviewing women, and I do well, men as well, of course, but it is time to flip the table around, I think, and I want to hear more from men about the challenges. I think masculinity is really undergoing tremendous change at the moment, and I think it's hard being a man in Australia. I think it's hard being a young man. I think it's hard being a man my husband's age. I think it, it you know, I think a lot of men don't know quite how to behave publicly, what to say to women, and so are saying nothing when they really should be saying a lot. Yeah. Um, we need to have that discussion. So Broad Talk is going to turn its attention to listening to men for a while. Fantastic, Virginia. It's been a true privilege. And, you know, we will hope to welcome you back and talk further. But, Todd, over to you. Thank you. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you very, very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I extend my thanks again to the wonderful Pimentri Pillay and EY Australia for the very kind invitation to be the subject of their Women in Leadership event. As always, I feel I come out of those events the winner because the audience questions always prompt me with so much food for further thought. Now, this episode concludes Series 2 of Broad Talk. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you've met some amazing new women and learnt a lot. I certainly have. Please make sure that you've clicked subscribe to Broad Talk wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss our new series on men and the challenges of feminism on masculinity. It's fascinating stuff and starts next month. My WBPP, World's Best Podcast Producer, Martin Pierce, and I are so grateful to each and every interviewee who's so generously given their time over this series. And we're very grateful to you, our dear listener. We love to hear your thoughts, so please drop us a line on our Broad Talk Facebook page, or better still, join the Broad Talk Roundtable group if you haven't already. You just click Group, and we'll throw open the doors. You can also find me most days on Twitter at Virginia underscore house and also I hang out at Talk Broad. So for now, go well, maintain the rage and happy chatting. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.